And so, yes, you'll get um, young people uh, doing it, but um, there are certainly uh, plenty of younger uh, economies around. And it seems to be women more than men who, who engage in buy now, pay later as well. It does seem to be so. I mean, sorry, as a business venture, I think it's it's very interesting. As for whether it'll move the needle on the economy, I doubt that it will. But yes, women are more likely to to do so. And it is incredibly strange the way in which Japan has been so resistant to it. And very quickly, let me just get your thoughts on the uh, the Japanese stock market going forward. We're seeing new all-time highs in the US for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq. Jerome Powell seems to have signalled that the party can carry on. Well, I think so. But um, but I think inside Japan, um, obviously, the market's been held up a lot more uh, as people take money out of other areas and throw them into US. US is very stretched. Japan is, is probably one of the more uh, sort of inflation-resistant uh, uh, economies globally. I, I think it's a, a market really worth looking at where um, you can get very good uh, dividend yields out of, uh, out of stocks. It's, um, it's not going to have a problem with a, a labor shortage as we, uh, we come out of um, um, we come out of the uh, the pandemic. Um, I, I think it's probably um, the market that people have been uh, have been missing out on. Nick, thanks very much indeed. Always good to talk to you. That's Nick Smith, who is Japan strategist at CLSA in Tokyo. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Tokyo, the Nikkei 225 right now is down a quarter of a percent. The ASX 200 in Australia is flat. The Cosby in South Korea also flat. And it looks like it's going to be a flat open for the Hang Seng as well in just under an hour's time. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. Stay tuned for Bat Chats with Hugh Chiverton and Ada Wong in just a moment. The weather forecast for today. Sunny interval is going to be cloudy with a few showers later. Maximum temperature of about 30 degrees and then there will be occasional showers and thunderstorms tomorrow. The showers will ease off in the afternoon. 28 degrees right now, 86% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Barry O'Rourke with the half-hour news. An employer's group wants the government to use the Penny's Bay quarantine camp to speed up the flow of foreign domestic helper maids into the SAR. The deal to admit fully vaccinated helpers was only struck last week and only one hotel, the Silka Chunwon, was earmarked for their 21-day quarantine. But it is fully booked until November the 1st. Betty Young, chairperson of the Hong Kong Employers of Domestic Helpers Association, said many employers were deterred by the cost of prepaying hotel quarantine and would like more choice. We are suggesting that government should reconsider whether they can take the option to explore whether Penny Bay isolation camp can be open for them. So if they can do that, I think, um, because you know, the hotel, uh, the terms and conditions uh, frightened and actually it's not uh, too man, many employers cannot accept that uh, uh, no amendment and con- cancellation can be made once the booking is confirmed and also full payment is required eight domestic helpers are expected to arrive today the first foreign maids to come to hong kong since flights were banned from the philippines and indonesia in april and june The U.S. military has completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan after a mission lasting nearly 20 years. Washington's ambassador to Kabul, Ross Wilson, and the U.S. military commander there, General Chris Donahue, were said to be the last people to board the final evacuation flight. The head of U.S. Central Command, General Frank McKenzie, announced the withdrawal. The last C-17 
lifted off from Hamad Karzai International Airport on August 30th this afternoon at 3.29 p.m. East Coast time. And the last manned aircraft is now clearing the airspace above Afghanistan. Tonight's withdrawal signifies both the end of the military component of the evacuation, but also the end of the nearly 20-year mission that began in Afghanistan shortly after September 11, 2001. It's a mission that brought Osama bin Laden to a just end, along with many of his al-Qaeda co-conspirators. General McKenzie acknowledged that the cost of the mission had been high, with more than 2,400 U.S. service personnel killed in two decades. The UN Security Council has adopted a resolution calling on the Taliban to ensure safe passage for people trying to leave Afghanistan. It also calls for the country not to become a haven for terrorists and urges a Taliban-led government to respect the rights of women, girls and minorities and allow unhindered humanitarian access. The council had been hoping to present a united international response to the crisis, but China and Russia abstained from the vote. Beijing's representative said the chaos in Afghanistan was directly related to the hasty and disorderly withdrawal of foreign troops. There'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Bank Chat. I'm Hugh Chiverton, your co-host today, Ada Wong. Ada, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. COVID-19 updates today and pets left behind. Respiratory medicine expert Lung Chi Chu has warned against barring unvaccinated people from public venues as a means to boost vaccination, saying this could lead to a backlash and even put elderly people and chronically ill patients at higher health risks. This came after Patrick Nipp said at the weekend he wouldn't rule out such restrictions. Meanwhile, microbiologist Yun Kwok Yun says the, the city should maintain its zero COVID strategy for the time being, while suggesting that herd immunity is no longer achievable with the emergence of the Delta variant. And the only hotel designated for quarantine for foreign domestic helpers is already completely booked for September uh, at a cost of $800 a night. The government, the, sorry, employers are urging the government to use Penny's Bay too. And Hong Kong schools are likely to be running at half-day sessions tomorrow when the new term begins, as almost none have reached the required 70% threshold of vaccinations. Does the zero COVID strategy work? How do we encourage people to get vaccinated if herd immunity can no longer be achieved? And what do you make of the half-day policy? Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Bankchat and RTHK Radio 3. Email us, bankchat at rthk.hk. Call us, 233-88266. Is the number, and after 9.15, we're going to be talking to the SPCA about the issue of pets being left homeless as their owners uh, leave Hong Kong. Once again, email us, bankchat at rthk.hk. Um, with your thoughts, joining us now, we have... Uh, Professor Roberto Bruzzoni is co-director of the Hong Kong U Pasteur Research Poll at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong. And Jean Wu, Emeritus Professor of Medicine in the Faculty of Medicine at the Chinese University and the director of the Chinese University's Jockey Club Institute of Aging. Good morning to uh, both of you. Good morning. Um, let's start with uh, uh, an email from... Uh, we've got emails on some other topics, but on today's first topic... Dan simply says, uh, end zero COVID policy. The cost of maintaining a COVID zero policy in Hong Kong far outweighs any benefits. Singapore has gone to a live with the virus mode. Australia has ended its zero COVID policy. It's time for Hong Kong to do the same before the damage to our lives, our children and our economy become irreparable. That is from Dan. Professor Brutsone, good morning to you and, and, and thanks for joining us. Do you agree with Dan? 
morning. Well, I've always agreed with the fact that we need to uh, coexist with this virus. This virus uh, um, is not likely to go away anytime soon. I think that there is a consensus now. Uh, from my point of view, all the indicators were there already one and a half year ago. It's a virus that gives many, many asymptomatic or very poorly symptomatic cases, therefore it can spread very easily. Uh, in most cases, you know, in people, you know, uh, with uh, less than 70 years of age and with no pre-existing conditions, it gives a very mild uh, disease, although there may be uh, long-term consequences. So it's very difficult to eradicate a virus that behaves like this. And, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, the only thing I can say, I'm surprised that in Singapore it took so long to get to this uh, simple conclusion. So, of course, I agree with that. Um, can you explain a little bit about um, not being able to achieve herd immunity? I guess uh, I looked at the figures now. We have over 4 million Hong Kong people who have um, taken at least one jab. So that's over 60% already. I thought that was a good sign, but then, you know, the secretary said that, um, uh, well, uh, herd immunity is no longer achievable. How, how's that? Uh, well, it, I don't have, you know, all the figures you have now in my hand, on top of my head, but uh, the herd immunity depends on, on two factors. One is the so-called reproductive number that now everybody has heard about, that is how many people, one infected individuals, can also contaminate, in fact, and the level, the percentage of uh, coverage of uh, vaccination. And because the reproductive number is probably now, uh, in particular for the new Delta variant, three or above three, then you need something you know, more close to 80 to 90% of uh, vaccination coverage. But that includes also people who are not at the moment eligible, like you know, children, adolescents, etc for which we have very few uh, vaccinated uh, individuals. And you need also to consider that although this is a very, very good vaccine, it's still 90% effective, not 100%. And we don't know for how long you can keep this level of coverage. So one thing is to protect individuals, for example, from severe cases, even if your coverage after vaccination your immunity wanes, decreases, and you're less, uh, you know, protected from it. And another thing is being protected and therefore giving rise to herd immunity. I think that herd immunity had been mentioned for many months. I think there was no need to talk about that because we haven't been able to do that with, uh, uh, with any other virus except in the case of, you know, smallpox that has been eradicated and polio, which has been eradicated from almost all countries. Uh, so yes, we will not have herd immunities. Uh, we need to prepare to have probably annual vaccination campaigns, although may not be with the same numbers that we have seen this year, like we do for influenza. We should have a committee of experts, like for influenza, convened by the WHO to decide what will be the next strain that should be used in the vaccination formulation or the combination of strains and prepare for that. And what do we do with the old people who are more vulnerable and in many cases more reluctant uh, to take the vaccination because they're concerned about the, the health effects and so on? How do we protect our elderly? Well, I think 
that everybody, you know, uh, as I say, actions have consequences. So uh, there are families that need to try to uh, protect them, okay? There is not just the government or, you know, uh, individual politicians that need to protect them. And the public health is not individual health, it's public health. So uh, we can try to persuade, we can try to teach things, but in the end, uh, if people are reluctant for a number of reasons, and we don't know whether the number of reasons is just the side effects, we don't know what goes in the mind of these individuals, and I think that they are free to decide what they want to do. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the government uh, or any region, city, uh, country cannot remain blocked uh, because there is a subgroup of individuals who, for one reason or another, don't want to take the vaccination. This is not just economic uh, considerations. This is life. This is social interactions. This is life as we understand it. I think that in this regard, and I conclude, I liked uh, the uh, message given by the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, uh, you know, in July saying, well, if you don't want to vaccinate, we accept that, but you, you will wear the burden of the consequence of this. That this is okay. Okay, Professor Wu, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us once again. Uh, what do you think of that? Do, do you agree with that? And what about this sort of a disagreement over how far you go to uh, compel people uh, to get vaccinated? Patrick Nipper said he wouldn't rule out uh, you know, putting restrictions on movement, uh, entering all kinds of premises for unvaccinated people. Um, Lung Chi Chu has sort of uh, disagreed on that. Where do you stand? been trying to work out the direction of government policy, pandemic control policy. It's very difficult, uh, but um, I, I understand that there's a balance between public health concerns. And uh, but but it seems that it's it's too too much focus on that, and we're not looking at costs for this policy, uh, which changes all the time, and the costs. Uh, come under the category health, social, psychological, e economic. And if you make policy, you, you should really look at the whole picture and not just um, concentrate on just uh, a, a medical perspective. Now, it seems to me that there is a, a lot of anxiety about herd immunity. Um, what is herd immunity? Oh, we, first, it was like 50%, maybe 70%. Uh, and now it goes up to 143 percent. I mean, the, the point is, I think there's a misunderstanding in the minds of the public and perhaps policymakers what herd immunity is. I mean, herd immunity does not, for this virus and many others, does not guarantee that you're protected from the disease, even if you're vaccinated. So unlike things like polio. So... Um, so it doesn't really make sense to say, well, um, if you, and then the assumption that if you're vaccinated, you uh, are protected from the disease. Um, therefore, it, it goes up and up and up. And then if other countries come, have high numbers, then we, we, we should tighten our borders. It, it, all this doesn't really make sense to me. Um, you see, with the, particularly with the Delta virus, uh, it, it's very clear that people who have had vaccination still get the disease, and they may get quite high 
viral load as well, compared, uh, you know, similar to unvaccinated people. And um, the, the good thing is that the viral load for Delta drops off very fast after the first week. And, and this is an important fact for people who want to extend the quarantine period from 14 to 7 to 21 days. Um, so, so actually what the vaccine does really is to protect you from severe disease and the need to perhaps be admitted to hospital, perhaps use of intensive care. That, that is the fact about the, the vaccine. And if policymakers take that on board, mm. um, why do we need to obsess so much about 70%, 80%, oh, it should be 80% now, and then it should be 90 and then recently 143%. I mean, clearly, it is not achievable. So I think I agree that the concept of, of this, um, uh, this protection, that it stops you from having the disease, I think it, it's a misunderstanding. It should be corrected. And if you, if you accept that, if you acknowledge that fact, then it would, uh, you, you should change all the other pandemic policies. After all, it's obvious to everybody. If you look at people who arrive at the airport, I mean, I think something like 50 to 75 percent of people who test positive have already been fully vaccinated with Pfizer, supposed to be very high, very effective. So, what does one make of that? And the other point, which is more hopeful, is some some of them kind of escape and uh, into the community. And um, and then uh, blocks get shut down. Everybody get tested. But I think looking at the news, I don't think we've had any serious outbreak from this Delta variant. That from from a couple of people who who have in quotes uh, escaped from the quarantine. So I, I think in, in general, I, I would say that um, it, it's futile to focus on the absolute number the target of what percentage of our population uh, need, need to, we need to achieve that number before we can do anything else. I, I think that is the wrong way to approach policy. Mm. And if one accepts that, then, you know, whether it's elderly, whether it's children under 12, kindergarten, uh, th those things would not be, one doesn't need to obsess about those people. Right. So, uh, Professor Wu, do you think it's time that we follow Singapore and other places in the world that um, you know, they have decided to live with the virus and, um, you know, they don't really have a zero COVID uh, policy anymore? Yeah, I think certainly from a scientific point of view, zero COVID is not achievable. Uh, however much we wish that, wish to see that, I mean, it's, it's fine to wish to see that, but, but the facts show that it is not possible. So um, then, then the question is, what does it mean to live with a virus? So you, it, it does not mean that then you just dismantle everything and then go to football matches, go to dance halls and pubs and, and hug each other without masks. That's the other extreme. I, I think uh, given that the virus is going to circulate, and it may or may not uh, affect you, uh, um, uh, uh, may not impact you, depending on whether you're vaccinated or not. I think we should keep all the masks, all the social distancing rules in place. 
But I think the um, I think people kind of tolerate that much better than if you shut down things like service centres, like centres for the elderly, uh, abolish visiting hours, all, all these things. I think with suitable precaution, we can allow um, society to function again. But, but, but again, again, should we be encouraging people to um, uh, get vaccinated, and in particular old people? Um, should we, and if so, how do we encourage people to uh, get vaccinated? And what do you think of that uh, a question of um, you know, how far you compel people? Do you say you can't go into restaurants if you haven't been vaccinated? You can't use the MTR or something like that if you haven't been vaccinated? Encouraging people to vaccinate is fine, and you can use incentives. But at the same time, you used to, you ought to remove barriers. So you ought to think about the barriers before you think about punitive measures. So um, there are still lots of barriers, uh, particularly if you're talking about older people. Um, so, for for example, why cannot uh, we adopt a policy like influenza? A lot of uh, older people find it difficult to get to even see doctors. They need to have um, relatives and everybody to accompany them. And, um, but they, they need to do that for their underlying disease anyway. Lots of people have regular appointments at hospitals, clinics. So why don't we set up uh, places at the, the hospitals themselves to say when they come for follow-up, uh, then you can go to another queue and say we'll we'll do your vaccination during your vac during your visit for your uh, follow up. This is what happens with influenza vaccination with the hospital authority. And then for those who live in institutions um, uh, or they go to daycare centres, surely one can facilitate that by uh, asking um, Department of Health teams or maybe a hospital authority, community outreach teams, to when they visit, to do their, you should to, to actually administer the vaccine. Because um, at one stage, uh, the Department of Health, there was a proposal about going to schools to vaccinate students, right? Why don't they do the same thing for the other end of the spectrum, the older people? I mean, that, so th these are some of the things that can be done before we talk about punitive measures. Mm. And after all, if you think that the low rate is of the fault of uh, these extremes of people, then you remove them because these punitive measures don't work because they don't go to these places anyway. Okay. All right. Uh, an email from uh, Paul. Uh, this is addressed to you, <coughs> excuse me, Professor Brizzoni. Uh, Paul says, your guest said something very important. He noted that personal health is public health. This is basic communism. When your own bodies become the property of the collective, then free will and personal rights can be negated. This is precisely what all this COVID-19 nonsense is all about. Whatever happened to my body, my choice. That comes from Paul. Professor Britzoni? Sure. Uh, as I said, you know, public health is a different thing from private health. Public health usually is done through legislation you know, in any country. For example, in America, a country that cannot certainly be accused of any sympathy towards communists, whatever the idea of communism is in 2021, if you are a medical personnel, health personnel, you cannot work if you're not vaccinated against influenza. It's as simple as that. 
And that's my comment. All right. Uh, MT in an email says, when, if ever, has a respiratory tract virus been eliminated? My understanding is that this has never happened before. A zero target is not achievable, says uh, MT. Yeah, why can't we, I like polio, we could wipe out polio uh, completely. We can be very, very successful against uh, tuberculosis, for example. Why is COVID so much more difficult? Well, may I say very quickly, mm. first of all, TB... In 2019, there were 700,000 people who died of TB, okay, died of TB in one year. So we have not eliminated TB. We may have eliminated TB from the countries where this person, you know, who sent the email uses to go. But I guarantee you that we have not eliminated No, that, that was my ignorance, not, okay. not, not his, yeah. So we have not eliminated TB. Uh, we have not eliminated HIV, and we have not eliminated any respiratory virus, except those that are eliminated by themselves. SARS-1 is being, for the time being, eliminated from humans. The reason that has been discussed so many, many times is that the first SARS in 2003 is a slightly different virus that had two important features that were to our advantage. First of all, everybody was symptomatic. Everybody, virtually everybody had symptoms. And secondly, people became contagious, able to infect other people after they became symptomatic, not before. So with simple public health measures, that is isolation of symptomatic individuals, this came to an end in a very, you know, rapid, you know, in, in less than six months, in six months about. So we need to consider that measles is also a respiratory virus, okay? And that measles in many countries is not eliminated, but uh, the number of uh, outbreaks is severely uh, reduced, except that now there are more and more people who think that vaccines are bad. Therefore, the vaccination coverage has decreased. And therefore, there are new and new outbreaks in many situations. New York has been a case. Uh, you know, there have been these in, uh, in Vietnam, in uh, countries here in Southeast Asia, precisely because we are below the threshold of vaccination coverage. Mm. There's also to be said that that vaccine seems to give longer-term protection. And this is also the same thing for the natural disease. If you get measles, Usually, you don't get it again in your life, even if you're not vaccinated. However, we have seen already cases of people that have received, you know, that were infected with the coronavirus, and then were also infected. Few cases, but obviously, although this is anecdotal at the moment, that clearly shows that the type of immunity for coronaviruses, and we have examples from different types of coronaviruses, is not very long-term. This is what we know at the moment. That may change, but this is our information. Okay. So we cannot eliminate it now. We have to live with it, and we have to see you know, what many other countries do, in particular in Europe, in the United States, where people now, I don't know, go to museums, go to concerts, go to stadiums, go to there are events, etc. And, of course, you, know, you have to be careful. But uh, at the same time, you try to you know, get back to, to life the way we know it. Um 
Professor Vizzoni, what about um, psychological health and yeah. social health? Is that part of public health as well? Uh, <laughs> I think, I think humans, yes. you know, humans um, need um, social interaction, and we can see children, you know, who have been isolated. You know, some of them, yes. you know, they have uh, signs of, um, you know, mental problems. You preach the choir in this. I mean, that's what I said. Public health is not just respiratory viruses. So, modeling everything, our our lifestyle on the number of potential cases that can be in a place like Hong Kong and just having this war bulletin every morning where there is a case or not a case, like we had a victory against the virus, does not help. As you say, yeah, there is a social health, there is psychological health, and there are many other diseases that people may, for example, refrain from going to hospitals or postpone checks and, uh, you know, uh, screening uh, tests and so forth and so on. This has been seen already. This is what I know. Clearly, you know, I'm from Italy. I, I, I work for the Institut Pasteur in France. I know that in these two countries, they have noticed that the number of tests, screens for cancers, for example, has significantly decreased. What does it mean? That a number of hundreds of thousands of people who thought they would go to have this uh, pre, uh, uh, pre-symptomatic test did not do that. That means that some cancers will be discovered later. And this also is public health. Hmm. All right, well, we're going we're to take a break uh, in just a moment. Paul, by the way, uh, gets back. He says, I'm glad your guests agree that this pandemic has been used to push world communism. Thanks for making this clear. That's uh, from Paul. Uh, well, well, we'll continue with the topic. We're also going to be talking to a spokesperson from the Asian Migrants Coordinating uh, Body later in the programme. And then uh, after that, uh, talking to the SPCA about uh, pets left behind when owners uh, leave Hong Kong. What is the situation there? Of course, as ever, we want to hear from you. You can email backchat at rthk.hk. We'll do our best to read out your comments. The weather forecast before the news now at nine. Sunny intervals forecast. It's going to become cloudy with a few showers. And more showers with a few thunderstorms later. Temperatures up to 30 degrees. The showers easing off in the afternoon. 29 degrees at the moment. The relative humidity is at 80%. ...was directly related to the hasty and disorderly withdrawal of foreign troops. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. Back chat on a Tuesday morning with Ada Wong and me, Hugh Chiverton. More COVID discussions uh, now. Later, we're going to be talking about the issue of pets uh, left behind uh, in Hong Kong. What is their fate? How many is that happening to? This is when people uh, leave our city. We'll be talking to the SPCA on that. And, of course, we want to hear your experiences, your questions and your comments. Welcome. Our telephone number is 233-88266. You can go to our Facebook page as well. That's Backchat and RTHK Radio 3. If you fancy sharing... Uh, or you can email us, backchat.rthk.hk. We'll do our best to read out your messages. Uh, we're joined by uh, Jean Wu, Emeritus Professor of Medicine, the Faculty of Medicine at the Chinese University, Director of the Chinese University's Jockey Club Institute of Aging, Professor Robert, uh, Roberto Bruzzoni, who's co-director of the Hong Kong Pasteur Research Poll and the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong, uh, and we're also joined now by Dolores Baladeres Palais, uh, who's a spokesperson for the Asian Migrants Coordinating Body. Um, some uh, interesting uh, emails. Uh, JK says there is a very poor leadership in Hong Kong. For example, a significant portion, if not the majority, of the hospital authorities' healthcare workers were not vaccinated 
uh, until recently. Uh, LP says, I did my civic duty in April at the first opportunity I could to be vaccinated in the hope that I would be able to visit my elderly parents in Europe before it's too late. I still have not been able to go due to the highly restrictive and not only financially crippling, but mentally damaging rules that we have here for quarantine in Hong Kong. Fully vaccinated people have actually been penalised rather than rewarded by the changes implemented due to the number of people here who refuse to get vaccinated. The whole world is opening up and Hong Kong is being left behind. Now, as it will be 100% uh, way more than six months before I'll be able to travel, I'm worried that the vaccination I, I had in April will be losing efficacy and there's no sign of a booster programme, etc. What is the Hong Kong government's plan going forward? Will fully vaccinated people still continue to be penalised due to the population who refuse to get vaccinated? Will we never be able to travel to see our families? We need a clear plan going forward. COVID is here for the long term. We need to find a way to learn to live with it uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, that comes uh, from uh, LP. Uh, Martin, by contrast, says, as herd immunity is unachievable and vaccine efficacy is declining, policymakers and some experts are putting all their eggs in one basket again, a third booster shot, and that Pfizer can earn more dollars. Instead of letting the Delta variant run wild, like in the US or UK, the zero-COVID approach China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, New Zealand and Australia are taking seems to be the right approach in order to buy more time to see how the Delta variant gamble in the West plays out and until a truly global vaccine programme kicks in, vaccine production capacity has increased, new vaccines and treatments can be found. For those experts who call for abandoning the zero COVID policy in Hong Kong, instead of propagating the slogan learning to live with COVID, they should call it for what it really means to many elderly people, learning to die with COVID. That comes from Martin. Uh, uh, Gene Wu, is that uh, do you, what do you make of what uh, Martin was saying there? This amounts to learning to die with COVID rather than learning to live with COVID. Well, um, I, I think that uh, the, the science doesn't support uh, these comments um, because the virus is changing all the time. We, we are trying to catch up to, um, to find out more about it. Now, if the current, if you take the current situation, the Delta virus, if you compare it with SARS-2 or 3, the impact is very, very different. Um, there, there are many indications that Delta actually um, may not be, if you're vaccinated, uh, that it, it, it may not have such... Um, severe consequences. It may, may make people asymptomatic. Um, there is no evidence to support that it's the Delta causing the elderly to die now. In fact, uh, in the countries that are living with, with um, virus, uh, you know, it's, it's, the, um, it's the younger people who, and, and largely they're unvaccinated. But of the vaccinated people, they, the disease is less severe. So I, I would disagree that learning to live with COVID is like learning to die for older people. Because they, they have different behaviours anyway. The, the, risk, the risk of people who, who live in residential care homes is negligible. They're brought in by visitors and the care staff. So, so I would say that if the care staff, you have a policy where care staff are vaccinated and you have regular testing, 
Yes, Professor Brittany? Yes, there are two things. First of all, uh, for many years, every year, we had the two um, seasonal, um, you know, uh, outbreaks or epidemics of, uh, of influenza. And uh, if you read uh, publications from the best uh, groups here in Hong Kong, they would tell you that, you know, depending on the year, there can be 500, almost to 1,000 excess deaths linked to influenza. Now, we had 200 uh, deaths from COVID uh, in almost two years of a pandemic. That means that learning to die with influenza is okay, but learning to live with COVID is not okay. There is another fact that one has to consider. Every year, there is what is called community-acquired pneumonia. This is mainly, you know, bacterial, it's not a virus, but in the end, your lung fills with fluid and you don't breathe, and then you can die. And there are several thousand every year that would die in Hong Kong of community-acquired pneumonia. I've never seen, since I've been here for 15 years, anybody saying that if you were not vaccinated against influenza, you could not see go to elderly homes, that if you were not wearing a mask, you could not do this and that. So apparently, Hong Kong had accepted that all these people could die without much fuss. Professor Brizzone, what about, um, you know, these half-day schools that have been continuing? I know that a lot of parents, in particular primary school parents, uh, they understand that children, um, you know, need not be vaccinated at the moment. Uh, so it means that um, they will continue to have uh, half-day school. And this has been, uh, you know, quite... Um, quite bad for many of the parents in particular, you know, those from the, um, you know, uh, uh, the socioeconomic status yeah. is lower. Well, you know, it, it, this is clearly an issue, and I think that uh, keeping our schools open has been a priority in many countries, uh, certainly in Europe, uh, perhaps not here, uh, but this is really very important. Uh, there are also studies done by my colleagues at the School of Public Health that have shown that outbreaks of respiratory disease last year in schools were not due to the coronavirus. What is important is that I understand that the government had asked uh, uh, you know, teachers and personnel in school to be vaccinated. Well, this, you know, as is the case for personnel working in the health sector in the United States, is a legitimate request from any uh, government or any authority. And I think that we should aim at achieving that type of, you know, vaccination coverage for teachers and personnel in school and make sure that schools remain open, you know, all day. I have a five-year-old daughter I think that her school, her kindergarten, will be open all day starting tomorrow, and I'm very happy about that. Uh, okay, uh, also with us, as I say, is uh, Dolores uh, Baladaris um, uh, Palais, uh, who's spokesperson for the Asian Migrants Coordinating Body. Uh, good morning to you, and, and, and thanks for, for joining us. What do you make of the arrangements uh, now underway for uh, foreign domestic helpers uh, coming to Hong Kong? A very slow start. I don't think anybody in the, in the new hotel uh, or the designated hotel uh, yesterday. It's reported that eight are due to arrive today, so a pretty slow start. Uh, what do you make of that? And also, uh, because it's expected to be full up, we heard an, uh, an employer um, this morning on Hong Kong Today suggesting that Penny's Bay also be used uh, to accommodate uh, foreign domestic helpers uh, coming to Hong Kong. Uh, what do you make of those suggestions? Um, okay, uh, good morning, uh, morning. everyone. Uh, uh, 
first, uh, we would like to express that uh, we welcome the uh, decision of the Hong Kong government to allow uh, domestic workers to come in in Hong Kong because uh, there were so many stranded, for example, in the Philippines. Uh, they've been stranded for over a year, almost two years, uh, to come to Hong Kong to work. And it's a good uh, sign that they, ca they can come in. But, uh, well, uh, we're expecting some uh, people to come yesterday, but unfortunately none uh, were reported and expected to come by, by Wednesday. And uh, we are also having a problem with uh, uh, designated quarantine hotels because as of this moment, uh, there's only one quarantine hotel and which is actually full uh, at this time. And the... Even the government is saying they are gradually allowing domestic workers to come in. I think it's very, uh, very slow, uh, considering that uh, almost uh, more than 200 domestic workers uh, uh, can only accommodate by the hotel, no? as far as I know, and it is uh, fully booked until November. So if it's only one hotel, then it will be very difficult. Uh, and uh, there are uh, thousands of uh, Domestic workers are stranded not only in the Philippines but also in Indonesia. Also, we are uh, questioning or we want to learn or to know the 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 reason or or the reason of the Hong Kong government why they uh, designate only uh, one or two hotels for uh, domestic workers, uh, considering that uh, they know thousands are coming in. While we understand that the Hong Kong government is uh, concerned primarily on the health of the people in Hong Kong, including domestic workers, I think uh, that uh, uh, giving designation hotel for for domestic workers is uh, not uh, uh, a good uh, uh, identification or response. So, so, so what, I think what... it should be uh, given right to the uh, to the worker, and also the price is very okay. High. What what about what about uh, using uh, Penis Bay? Would you support that? Sorry. What about using uh, in addition to the uh, hotel using the quarantine facilities at, at Penis Bay for uh, domestic helpers? Penis Bay. Penis Bay. You know the uh, the area on Lantau where you go if you've been in a close contact. Wow. Um, I think uh, that could be an option, but it's not. I, I guess uh, it should not be uh, the only one. Uh, it should be freely given a uh, right for the employer to to, to look for for quarantine place for their workers. Um, yes, uh, Dolores, I understand that all these thousands of maids are new to Hong Kong and they've been waiting to come. But there are more uh, helpers here who would like to go back home to visit their family, you know, in between contracts. And they yeah. have not been allowed to go back because, you know, it'll be very difficult for, for them to come back to Hong Kong. If we add those numbers, how many do you think there are? Well, I, I, I guess it's also in thousands. I, I don't have exactly uh, statistics because we're talking of uh, almost two years, and prior to this, there are also uh, people who have to have their vacation prior to the pandemic, so it's accumulating. Um, it's Yeah, I agree with you. It's very difficult, and actually the workers, even if it's a hard decision, uh, we decided, most of them, 
decided not to leave Hong Kong because the the problem of the quarantine and additional expenses that we incur while we are uh, living in Hong Kong, quarantine in our country, and then the, the quarantine in Hong Kong. Practically, we have to have uh, two months or almost uh, two months uh, leave so that we can, you know, uh, avail, uh, we can be uh, in the quarantine area and still have some time uh, to be in our, in our family. And, and I think uh, employers will not, uh, no, will not give that kind of uh, long, long vacation, including the quarantine. So actually, uh, quarantine is big issue, and uh, uh, I think the Hong Kong government can also uh, think of how to deal with this long quarantine. Okay. Well, many thanks for uh, joining us, uh, Dolores Baladares Payes, uh, spokesperson for the Asian Migrants Coordinating Body. Uh, Jeff, in an email, says, in regards to helpers needing to be vaccinated to be employed, did it occur to anyone that we should also insist on the household of the employer uh, be fully vaccinated before they're allowed to employ a helper? Uh, that seems like another blame the helper being primed. Uh, that's uh, from uh, Jeff. Uh, S says the professor suggested the government going to elderly homes to provide vaccination for the elderly. However, from what we learned yesterday, since all will need to be screened for safety and there is a long waiting time of about one and a half to two years, how can that be practically feasible? That comes from uh, S. Uh, sorry, what's the waiting time there? I don't quite understand that that, that point, uh, to be honest. Uh, and uh, on Facebook, Steve says, enough of this zero-case policy. Let's give everyone two months' notice to get the vaccine. It's readily available, and then return the city back to normal business. We can't continue like this as if it's a permanent fixture. We learn to live with the flu, chickenpox, measles, etc. That's from Steve. Thank you very much indeed to to our guests this morning, to Professor Roberto Brizzoni, co-director of the Hong Kong Pasteur, Hong Kong U Pasteur Research Poll at the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong and from the Chinese University, Jean Wu, who's a Meritus Professor of Medicine the faculty at the Chinese University and a director of the CUHK Jockey Club Institute of Aging. Thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us this morning. Uh, comment uh, related to our discussion yesterday before we go on. Ed says, it was refreshing to have a, the Secretary for the Environment speak and take questions. The long-delayed, for unknown reasons, legislation is welcome and it should help, certainly help increase recycling, especially in newer buildings. The mantra for so long has been reduce, reuse and recycle. It's unfortunate that so little is being done to facilitate the reduction in waste and the backbone of the city's reuse scheme is the army of septuagenarians or older who not only collect the city's cardboard but also sell second-hand items for reuse all over the city while running the gauntlet of crack FEHD and police squads looking to arrest them. Higher tax on excessive single-use packaging from sugary drinks to laundry detergent would discourage the creation of waste while giving some of the city's space to allow community-based legal stalls to facilitate the selling of second-hand goods. would also re reduce waste uh, reduce waste through reuse as well as decriminalising being old and poor for many. It does seem that the concept of waste charging will be better than the last scheme of making trash can openings smaller, but really so much more could be done before charging schemes are implemented. Hopefully we'll see more legislation that has sat idle for decades for no known reason start to get rubber-stamped by LegCo. 
That's from uh, Ed. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, finally, today, as mentioned, we wanted to turn to the question of uh, homeless pets. Animal lovers say uh, the recent departure of thousands of Hong Kong people seeking new lives elsewhere has led to a surge in the number of uh, abandoned pets uh, in the uh, territory. Um, for comment, we're joined now by uh, Fiona Woodhouse, Deputy Director of Welfare at the SPCA, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Dr Woodhouse, good morning to you. Morning. Thank you very much indeed for for joining us um this morning what what do you know anything about the figures have you got a sense of is you know are there many cases like this of, um, of people leaving and leaving their pets behind yes we have seen that trend um you know just at the spca and there are now many more animal welfare ngos trying to help with um sort of rehoming homeless animals we've seen a significant increase year on year for the first seven months of the year um if you look at a case basis so that's actually individual families or people emigrating we've seen a 77 percent increase um, and in terms of animals we've seen of like a 40 percent because sometimes people have more than one pet so we ourselves are seeing that and those are just cases we're handling we're also getting a lot more inquiries about um, you know how to leave with your pet or possibly considering surrendering so that might be people looking at the different options um, but recently we've seen um, sort of a slight decline in those inquiries so it may be that people who were leaving were leaving around the school year if they've got families and things like that um, but we'll have to look at the next few months to see whether that trend continues Yes. Um, are people aware that some breeds might not be allowed on airlines and some breeds um, can be allowed? And how, you know, where, where is this information these days? Um, I think that that is a significant issue, especially in somewhere like Hong Kong, where we have quite a mobile population who, you know, sort of do move around for work or family reasons. Um, and people adopt animals or, or, you know, get them from uh, breeders or pet shops. And there is this trend towards what we call brachycephalic um, dogs, which are the flat-nosed dogs, so pugs, um, Pekingese, uh, Boston Terriers, French Bulldogs, Bulldogs and things like that. And a lot of the airlines have embargoes on actually flying those animals because they face significant risk in flying them and, and sometimes they pass away during flying. So people you know, may not be aware of that or they may not consider that as a factor when they're initially sourcing a pet. And then again, when you come to the time to try to relocate with your pet, that's an additional challenge to find a route that you can take your animal on, which may mean transiting via a different country, which can add to the complications of your import and export process as well. But most of these um, sort of restrictions will be on the air airline's website. So they will actually have a list of the breeds that they won't fly. Um, and also some cat breeds are also being added to the, those lists, I believe, as well. But you might be able to transit, you might be able to go via somewhere else. and Yeah, some airlines will still fly them. Um, I think the thing that you also need to consider, though, with those breeds is when you're flying on an airline that accepts them and transiting, you've got to look at that transit and the transport time. So there are also other things that come into play, like when you're going to Europe, there are minimum maximum transport times that you're allowed to do for your animal on your itinerary so you may not be allowed to get your animal into Europe if you're going over I think it's around 16 hours including the transit time and also if you're going via an airline an airport you've got to be concerned about what is happening to the pet in transit is it staying on the plane in an air-conditioned hold is it being offloaded and stuck on the hot tarmac um, in 36 degrees um, for several hours, which increases the risk of things like heat stress, which is what people are worried about. Mm. 
Uh, and what about the the cost? Uh, we had an email from. This is from Guy. He says, have you asked any airline reps to join the conversation explain why their pet transportation costs have tripled or quadrupled, contributing to pet uh, abandonment? Uh, do you know anything about the cost going up? Um, yes. Unfortunately, it's a, a case of supply and demand. Um, you know, it's been very, very difficult. Some airlines have not actually been transporting animals for several months um, during the sort of pandemic because if there aren't the flights going then um, they don't have the flights that can actually take the animals and quite often there's only a few flights that will have the um, sort of uh, pressurised cargo component con areas in the cargo that can actually take the pets um, so there's issues with that, it's the same with us getting on planes as well, the ticket prices have gone up but there are some options available that may be more reasonable um, some airlines for smaller animals you can actually take them in the cabin with you um, they may have limitations but then you know you're, you may pay a small fee or you can take your animal as excess baggage as well so you have to really explore um, sort of the different options that are available on the different routes as well and that may mean transiting again um, so I had an acquaintance who recently went back to the UK but flew on KLM um, and transited via ferry to the UK. So there are routes that are available that, that may be more reasonable. Um, and as flights um, increase in number, then obviously hopefully the, the situation will normalise. But I think it's a, an issue that's two-way. So we're also having the issue that people who want to bring animals into Hong Kong are having issues as well. Um, even it's a global issue for this. So it's not just something that Hong Kong is facing. So people trying to move their pets around the world with them which is something that we encourage is uh, facing those challenges. Is this mostly because of COVID? Yes, I would say that it is mostly because of COVID. Before COVID, um, the prices were more, I would say, uh, sort of a normal. Um, it was not an unreasonable cost. Obviously, the complicated thing is dealing with all the paperwork. And that's something else people get caught out about, is they don't realise sometimes there are requirements in terms of certain types of testing for different countries, rabies, serology, sometimes testing for infectious diseases that people may not want going into their countries, like the tick-borne diseases that are prevalent in Hong Kong. And so that whole export process can start a year, nine months, six months out and, and you can fail at the last minute with some of these blood tests that have to be done in the few weeks before you actually ship your dog as well, or cat for instance. So those are things you need to consider as well. Um, from the point of animal welfare, um, is it a good idea to relocate them and you know put them through this sort of ordeal, like you know staying in a cabin and, and some countries do require a short quarantine period, and so they have to live with other animals. You know, after you know they um, land, uh, it's um, or are animals actually quite resilient and they overcome this easily? I think you've got to look at the whole thing. So we talk about responsible pet ownership and being responsible for life. Your pet is accustomed to you. You're accustomed to your pet. Um, you know, it's very difficult to find homes, especially for older animals. Um, so it's, it is a good thing to take them with you. You can do things that can help you and help them with the process, such as training them beforehand, getting them used to the carriers, um, sort of so that they're not as stressed when they do that. Of course, there will be a stress involved and that's not avoidable. 
Um, these days, a lot of the focus on the uh, sort of movement of animals around the world is to try to reduce the quarantine period. So the, this is why we have all the blood testing and the disease screening in that most, most places these days, especially if you're coming from a rabies-free country like Hong Kong, you'll have uh, zero quarantine when you arrive, um, as long as you're compliant and you've done all the correct paperwork. And that can be a challenge. So quite often we will advise people to contact a pet uh, transport agency um, either to assist with the whole process or at least give basic advice on the requirements because they can change and we don't want people to get caught out um, on arrival. How much would it cost to say take a dog to Australia Canada, UK? I have no idea. Okay. I think it, it ranges from, <laughs> yeah. I've heard figures of... Uh, I hear 100,000. Yeah, 50 think. to 100,000. But again, if you can if you can go on a, a flight via London and take them in the cabin with you, then it's probably the cost of your ticket plus uh, a sh an ex additional fee plus all the paperwork fees. So you can actually reduce it quite significantly if you're doing it yourself and, and taking a so maybe a slightly um, sort of different route, as it were. That you could do that with a small cat or dog. Yeah, they, they so quite often will say you can take it in the compartment in the class, and maybe they limit them. Um, sometimes they say that they have to fit in a, a, a sort of a carrier that has to fit under the seat in front of you, so you are really limited in in how big you can take. But small a cat, um, definitely you can take in, um, and smaller dogs as well. Mm. Um, uh, I know that the SPCA, you know, has a policy that only if um, your homes are already full, you don't take on, you know, the pets. But what if, you know, the families decide to leave the pets behind? Do you think there are enough organizations now in Hong Kong to accept and receive these um, animals? Well, I think there is, but that's the other concern, is that with this sort of um, changes in the population dynamics, do we have enough people who are happy to take on pets? Maybe they're considering moving. So even if those animals can go into organisations, and of course there's always the, the sort of back net of the AFCD, but are they able to be adopted eventually? Because that's the idea, is we don't want the animals to stay in shelters for, for long periods of time, because that can also be a challenge to them as well so yes i think we've got enough capacity to help um, but ideally we want to encourage people to also try to find homes themselves through their network of friends or relatives as well to avoid them uh, overburdening the sheltering system well, many thanks for uh, joining us, uh, uh, Dr. Fiona Woodhouse, there, Deputy Director of Welfare at the SPCA. Thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us. A couple more comments just to uh, finish off. Uh, in emails, Martin says, uh, comment on your experts on COVID by drawing parallels to influenza deaths. Your expert just reconfirmed that the slogan learning to live with COVID is incorrect. Your experts know al also very well that COVID is many times more serious than influenza. It's not very responsible to make such statements. So keeping with the truth, call it for what it really means, learning how to die with COVID. For those who call Hong Kong's current COVID restrictions communist and the Hong Kong government incompetent in handling the COVID pandemic, compare that to current draconian restrictions in Australia or New Zealand and many other places. We in Hong Kong even didn't have a single full lockdown. Hong Kong is one of the best performing places throughout the whole crisis. What about showing some appreciation for this? That comes uh, from um, Martin. And uh, Rob says, 
the zero COVID policy is the same unrealistic slogan or policy than the other government policy, zero accidents on the roads. Hong Kong's goal, as long as there are cars on the road, there will be accidents. Uh, thanks very much indeed for that. And Leon says, your two speakers on COVID this morning highlight the huge variance in quality of your guests. The Italian expert is informative, eloquent and clear in his views. Gene Wu uh, not so much. Please invite Roberto back on your show. That comes uh, from uh, Leon. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that. Uh, Ada, thank you. Here's the weather. Sunny intervals becoming cloudy with a few showers. More showers uh, with thunderstorms around later. And the outlook, there will still be occasional showers and thunderstorms tomorrow. The showers will ease off in the afternoon. Hot with sunny periods in the following couple of days. 29 Celsius. Relative humidity is at 80%. The government will introduce enhancements to the electoral arrangements for the coming elections. There will be special queues for electors who are aged 70 or above, pregnant or in need. Electronic poll registers will be used to enhance efficiency in issuing ballot papers. There will also be measures to enhance inspection of the register of electors and prevent acts of manipulating or undermining elections. Improve electoral system. Ensure patriots administering Hong Kong. 9.33, the news now with Vicky Wong. An employers group wants the government to use the Penny's Bay quarantine camp to speed up the flow of foreign domestic helpers into the SAR. The deal to admit fully vaccinated helpers was only struck last week and only one hotel, the Silka Chunwan, was earmarked for their 21-day quarantine but is fully booked until November the 1st. The U.S. military has completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan after a mission lasting nearly 20 years. Washington's ambassador to Kabul, Ross Wilson, and the U.S. military commander there, General Chris Donahue, were said to be the last people to board the final evacuation flight. And a huge rescue operation is taking place in the U.S. state of Louisiana, which was struck by Hurricane Ida on Sunday. Rescue workers and volunteers are using hundreds of boats and aircraft to find people trapped by floods. Ida is known to have killed at least two people, but the toll is expected to rise. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer and Interpreter of Beethoven. As well. oh so shy, quiet and retiring doggy council co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is really for adults, it's not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. The sight of what's happening behind the lift. Good morning. In-depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning, good day and welcome to Tuesday. Here on The Morning Brew with me, Phil Whelan. Well, it's going to be really good to be back with Danny Hicks. He's going to be joining us in about five or six minutes from now as we get into the last week of the 2020 Paralympics. He's going to talk about medals, of course, and some of the amazing athletes he's met. After 10 today, Jared Watts choosing the tunes, and he'll also bring us all the news from down under that's fit to broadcast. 11.10, Dr. Merrin Pierce. He's going to join us live from Sheng Shui. He's out there this morning looking at some of the ecological features of the golf course. And there are a 